Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Football is back. All of your week one odds, props, promos, and parlays are available right now at Bet Online Sportsbook. And when you use our promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, you can get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with the link in the description to this episode. Bet Online, where the game and the season starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the take. It Easy Podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. And podcasts aren't live. It's the whole purpose of these podcast things. You can listen however and whenever it is that you so choose, and we appreciate that you have decided to stop in however and whenever you may be chosen. We have got a fantabulous show today. It's Labor Day Monday, everybody. Happy Monday, September 4th, 2023, here on the Take It Easy podcast. We come at you every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So here on Labor Day, we're going to be delivering the content for you. I'm glad that you have decided to stop in and make us a part of your Monday or your Tuesday or however and whenever it is that you may be listening. Our friend Juju Talk Sports is going to join us here on the Take It Easy podcast. Excited to chat it up with Juju today, as well as a a special guest on today's show, our friend uh, over from BOTA Sports. They call it BOTA. I call it BOTA. Just rolls off the tongue a little bit easier for myself, but uh, our friend joining us on the show is... uh, Zach Burl from BOTA Sports, uh, BOTA, whatever you want to call it. Zach is joining us to chat it up today. We're going to talk about uh, the Arizona Cardinals and an interesting development around Caleb Williams. I had fun with that conversation, obviously, because we do an Arizona Cardinals podcast with our friend Walter Mitchell, and uh, we've had some conversations with our friend Joe Camo before breaking down the Cardinals and the draft situation. And if you want more Arizona Cardinals talk, you can always check out the Red Rain podcast to get Walter's thoughts and some of my thoughts on everything happening with the Cardinals in depth. And uh, if you want some of my analysis on the Arizona Cardinals, we'll break that down today on the show. Also going to talk a little bit about Tua and the Miami Dolphins. We've kind of just been, uh, when Juju and I have done these YouTube videos, we've kind of just been knocking out a handful of teams piece by piece all throughout the uh, uh, over the last month on our way to breaking down the 
NFL season, which starts on Thursday. NFL starts this Thursday. And uh, before we get to that, though, there is one topic I want to broach here on this side of the podcast, and that is we had college football week one this week. Uh, Technically, it's still going on. Clemson plays Duke tonight, so I don't know what happened. If Duke pulled off the miraculous upset against Clemson and Cade Klubnik, uh, I don't know about it. Okay, so from this point forward, there wasn't a whole lot of interesting or exciting during the college football weekend. We had that awesome LSU-Florida State game that was a top eight matchup, and we had the Deion Sanders-Colorado experiment going off to an awesome start, which, by the way, I don't really want to talk about the Deion Sanders-Colorado experience all that much. I don't even want to hate on it because most people were saying they were going to win two games or one game. Some sports books even took bets on half a game this season for Dion and Colorado. I don't even want to hate on the Deion Sanders experiment. I don't even want to hate on Travis Hunter or Shadur Sanders or everything that they're doing at Colorado. Like, I don't even want to hate on it. It was just awesome for them to just beat the crap out of TCU. Shadur Sanders, the quarterback who's Dion's son, he broke the Colorado school record for passing yards. He threw 510 passing yards in his first game. His first game broke the school record for passing yards. It was awesome. The game was like 45-42. It reminded me of that TCU-Michigan playoff game last year that was just like, oh, look at this bullshit. It's going to be... Both teams score in the 40s. No defense is going to be played. We're going to have six touchdowns in seven minutes. It was awesome and fun, and uh, that game was cool. But I don't want to do the the in-depth breakdown of Colorado or anything like that. The whole Deion Sanders thing does not interest me at all. At all. Really don't get the fascination around the Deion Sanders experiment because I guess I'm just of a different generation in that respect. The thing I want to talk about is the greatest moment of the college football week one and this is more so just me being a a former instagram meme expert at heart Uh, for those who don't know comical sports memes our instagram page that previously used to have 50,000 subscribers or i guess followers because it's instagram 50,000 followers on instagram we built it from zero to 50,000 in the span of about four years uh, page got hacked. We have a secondary page now that's hanging around 64,000 right now. We like to have fun on that page just occasionally because I'm not as big into the social world as I used to be. I think it was something that I was using as a coping mechanism to deal with a difficult uh, traumatic back end of my childhood. And so it was a coping mechanism was making fun memes and putting my creative energy into that instead of creative energy into these podcasts or creative energy into sports radio, which I do now. I'm a sports radio producer. You can check me out, Sacktown Sports. There's a YouTube channel. You should go find it. You might see me in the background or see me co-hosting a show or something like that. Um, But this weekend, I did get fixated on uh, one story that I thought was absolutely amazing. Portland State played against Oregon this weekend. And it's a game that didn't really mean all that much because Portland State, uh, although they're the, the... If you know college football history, Portland State is the school that created the run and shoot offense they were uh, with Mouse Davis and then later with June Jones. They were the early 
innovation that eventually led to the air raid offense and the air raid offense took college football by storm in the 90s and 2000s with Hal Mummy and Mike Leach and the quarterbacks who ran that offense included Lincoln Riley and Cliff Kingsbury and a handful of air raid coaches are now incredibly successful coaches running the air raid offense every team runs a version of the air raid offense in the NFL including the Kansas City Chiefs the Kansas City Chiefs run a dynamic air raid offense adapted by Andy Reid to now dominate the NFL with the greatest offense any of us have ever seen the earliest earliest iterations of the air raid offense came from the invention of the run and shoot by Mouse Davis at Portland State June Jones was his quarterback June Jones ended up going on to have tons of success as a coach, including in the NFL with the Chargers and with the Atlanta Falcons. And then he was the head coach at Hawaii when Hawaii with Colt Brennan went to the Sugar Bowl in 2007. Just all sorts of success uh, with the run and shoot offense. And the earliest iteration of that came from Portland State. Uh, nowadays, Portland State, not very good at football. I don't even know if they run the run and shoot offense anymore. But Portland State was playing against Oregon. And this is just one of those games that Oregon schedules for free wins on their schedule. They're going to pay Portland State $500,000 to come get their ass beat at home. And it's the first game of the season. It fills a schedule spot. And Oregon gets to practice out the gate. You know, nothing too surprising. It's a mid-major going to get their ass beat by Oregon and getting paid to get their ass beat because it will fund their athletic department for much of the season. And uh, Portland State got their ass whooped by Oregon. Uh, the final score of that game was Portland State 7, Oregon 81. And... This was not the biggest blowout of the weekend in college football. You had other shocking scores like Ole Miss beating Mercer 73-7. to You had Oklahoma beating Arkansas State and Butch Jones 73-0. to There was a Division II game in Texas that ended up 96-0. to 96-0 was the final score of a football game. For those keeping track at home, that is not even 13 touchdowns. It's like 13 touchdowns, a field goal, and two two-point conversions. Or maybe 13 touchdowns and five two-point conversions. Maybe there was a safety in there. I don't know how they got to 96. I just know the final score was 96 to 0. So there were some blowouts this weekend. And Oregon 81, Portland State 7 was one of those incredible blowouts. The thing that I found incredible, though, is when I looked up the box score for Oregon. Oregon, who recorded 746 total yards of offense, 379 passing yards compared to the 52 from Portland State. Oregon, who put up 367 rushing yards, which, by the way, was 160 more than Portland recorded total yards in the game. Portland State had 200 total yards. Oregon had 367 rushing yards. Oregon had 36 first downs compared to Portland State's 8. Final score, 81-7. to I don't know if you guys saw this trending on Twitter, but the Oregon Duck, who does the push-ups for every time they score, the Oregon Duck had to do 520 push-ups 
because it was, you know, when they score the first touchdown, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then the next one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, all the way up to eighty-one points. The Oregon Duck had to knock out five hundred and twenty push-ups during that game against Portland State. In a game that was eighty-one to seven, where Oregon outgained Portland State 746 to 200 in total yards in a final score of 81 to 7 Portland State won time of possession Portland State 36 minutes 40 seconds time of possession Oregon 33 minutes 43 seconds time of possession and granted this was with about 32 seconds left in the game so Portland State ran it up a little bit more Portland State possessed the ball longer than Oregon did which is absolutely hilarious because how many dads have you heard watching football give the generic analysis of you gotta control time of possession hell on this podcast I've given the analysis you gotta control time of possession especially against the San Francisco 49ers got to control time of possession against the Kansas City Chiefs because your best strategy of playing the game against Mahomes is to keep Mahomes off the field I've given this analysis before but this is the most sarcastically perfect version of that lazy NFL analysis and lazy football analysis control time of possession you will win the game and Portland State put together time of possession four minutes more than Oregon, despite the fact that they lost 81-7, to which tells me that either A, they were just holding the ball until the very end of the time of possession clock, or until the end of the play clock, which would be very much not in the run-and-shoot offense style. The run-and-shoot offense is all about getting up to the line as fast as possible, running these plays with mesh routes and crossing routes and deep balls and throwing the ball all over the place. Portland State had 52 passing yards in the game, so I'm going to suspect that the run-and-shoot was not exactly in play for Portland State here. Portland State, who had eight first downs, 200 yards of offense, They possessed the ball longer than Oregon, which means either A, Portland State was just holding the ball till the end of the clock, like I said, number one, or number two, Oregon was scoring touchdowns on the first plays of these drives. Like, it was three plays, 75 yards, touchdown for Bo Nix in Oregon. It was four plays, 75 yards, touchdown on a 38-yard completion from Bo Nix. Oregon was just scoring like nobody's business, and Portland State still ended up winning the time of possession battle. It was chef's kiss perfect. The best thing I've seen all weekend, so much so that I felt the urge to dedicate 10 minutes of our Monday podcast to talking about Portland State. Portland State football. A team that we will not think about the rest of the season unless Portland State plays against Oregon State sometime later this season. Let's see what Portland State football schedule looks like. This is week one college football. Nobody's going to give you a more in-depth Portland State football breakdown than us here at the Take It Easy podcast. Portland State plays Wyoming next week, so hey, maybe that'll be on CBS Sports Network or something that we can catch 
on the side of these broadcasts, Portland State and Wyoming, who do they play later on in the season? Oh, they play here in Sacramento. They play against UC Davis, my alma mater. Great. So we got Portland State, UC Davis in November. Maybe we're going to, I mean, we cover the games at our station, so I might get to work that game. But you know what? Maybe I'm going to have to go out to UC Davis to watch Portland State take on UC Davis as a tribute to the Portland State offense that, despite losing 81-7 to Oregon, held the ball for longer, won the time of possession battle against the Ducks, and I think that's a victory of all victories this season for Portland State. The most impressive thing I'll see on a football field all year, or I guess I'll hear about, because Lord knows I didn't watch that game. I don't have Pac-12 network on my dial. Portland State losing by 74 points and winning the time of possession battle against Oregon might be the most impressive thing that I have seen all season. I tip my cap to you, Portland State, and as tribute for your incredible accomplishment, November 4th, I will go watch you guys play against UC Davis. I will pay money to watch you guys play UC Davis out here in the Big Sky Conference of FCS. Portland State, salute to you. Losing a football game by 74 points, but winning the day by somehow winning the time of possession battle against Bo Nix's Oregon Ducks. I salute you, Portland State. You delivered me the greatest laugh of the entire weekend, something I've been so fixated on for two days that we had to flip on the microphones here on the podcast and talk about Portland State putting together the most incredible accomplishment I have seen all season in college football, which is twofold. Winning the time of possession battle against Oregon, still finding a way to lose by 74 fucking points. Now here is our friend Juju Talk Sports and Zach from Boda talking about Kyler Murray, Caleb Williams, and Tua Tagovailoa. A new report from Pro Football Network is suggesting the Arizona Cardinals are privately telling people that Kyler Murray is not expected to play this season. They also just shipped out former first-round pick Isaiah Simmons to the New York Giants this week. With these two happenings in Arizona, is there any mystery to what the Cardinals' intentions are regarding the 2023 regular season? Kyle, what are you thinking? No. No, there are not. They are really, really bad. Um, It's not just trading away Isaiah Simmons, the former number eight pick in the NFL draft, which, by the way, this isn't even the first time this has happened to the Cardinals where they can't figure out a position for a high first round draft pick. And so they kind of just wander in the desert, metaphorically and literally for three years. Then they jettison them off and then they turn into a star. This is Hassan Reddick all over again, okay? This is exactly what happened to Hassan Reddick. Exactly word for word is what's happening to Isaiah Simmons. They shipped him out for nothing at the end. It's not just that. Within one day, they traded Isaiah Simmons and Josh Jones, who was their highest PFF graded offensive tackle last year, traded both of them in exchange for Josh Dobbs and a seventh round pick, which is just awful. Just absolutely objectively awful. Then we can go to the fact that the Cardinals are currently paying their general manager the 31st out of 32 salaries in the league this year. They're paying their head coach, Jonathan Gannon, 32nd out of 32 teams 
at the head coaching position and salary. They are not investing in the team because they owe Cliff Kingsbury $30 million over the next six years. They've raised ticket prices over the past couple of years to make up for their losses. The Cardinals are absolutely tanking, absolutely tanking. And it's incredible to watch happen in real time. It is incredible to watch a team that two years ago started the season 8-0 and made the playoffs and was one Detroit Lions upset away from winning the NFL against the San Francisco 49ers and Super Bowl champion Los Angeles Rams. Like they were that good two years ago and then it just all fell apart and now they're actively deciding to tear the team to the ground. It's remarkable to watch happen in real time, but make no mistake about it. Yeah, they are tanking. They are not invested in winning this season. I know Kyler Murray wants to get back before the season is over, but if you'll remember, Kyler Murray tore his knee in November of last year, maybe it was early December was the, the game against the Patriots. And he didn't have surgery until about January 3rd. So just because he got hurt in December doesn't necessarily mean the rehab timeline will line up with when he got injured. He delayed surgery by about four weeks while they were evaluating their options. And so he got surgery in January. The earliest he's expected to be back is sometime in November. And if the Cardinals just shut it down and say, we're going to protect our player, it's probably not going to go the right way with Kyler Murray. But at that point, are the Cardinals even invested in Kyler Murray's long-term success because are actively taking and will actively have a chance at a quarterback at the top of the draft? Okay, so they have a chance at quarterback at the top of the draft. That quarterback that they seem to be angling towards would be USC quarterback Caleb Williams. Caleb Williams... Of course, he's the favorite to win Heisman this year. He's projected to do big things for the Trojans and potentially even get that team back to a college football playoff. But Zach, you mentioned this a little bit off podcast. We're talking about just the willingness of the Cardinals to move off their top 10 drafted quarterbacks. We saw this before with Josh Rosen. Now that it's happening at Kyler Murray, what do you think the chances are for success for Caleb Williams? if he does land in the desert? Well, I mean, just how this franchise is uh, projecting to be and its trajectory from the last couple, you know, I would say winning season two years ago, and then obviously last year was a disaster. But if they don't do anything to support Caleb Williams, then he's going to end up exactly like every other quarterback that has stepped inside that, that quarterback room in Arizona, and that is bad. You know, Kyler has the tools to be a good NFL quarterback, you know, his issue is is health. Before that, Josh Rosen, he didn't have the tools to be a good quarterback, you know. So they've they're they're going to be moving on from these quarterbacks for different reasons. I don't necessarily know that Caleb Williams is going to be able to save that franchise if they don't do anything else to bolster their roster before they draft him. Do you think their head coach there is basically being set up to fail as well? Like, do you think oh, that sure. Gannon even has a chance, like, of taking this franchise into the future? I mean, I think he's going to attempt to try some semblance of coaching, but I think obviously I feel like it's obvious to all of us who, you know, watch football that they are actively tanking. So do I think he has a chance? No. (laughs) So the future of Kyler Murray is one that's in limbo as well, based on all this. Like we know that if they are going to be as bad as they're going to be, then they are going to get a quarterback at the top of the draft regardless. Now, if they miss on Caleb Williams, like let's say they fall into the Drake May tier, and there's a lot of people that even think that Drake May might be as good, if not better, than Caleb Williams in the long term. Do you think that they still should move off of Kyler Murray? If th- that does happen, do you think that Drake May is an equal replacement? I don't even know if I would move off of Kyler Murray for Caleb Williams. 
I'm not 100% sure about that one either, because similar to what Zach said, you have to build a support system around the quarterback. And yes, people view Caleb Williams as this long-term successful quarterback prospect and prodigy, the best quarterback prospect since Trevor Lawrence, you've heard people say. And that was only three years ago, so we're not talking about that long of a timeline. But Kyler Murray got that $200 million extension for a reason. Kyler Murray has made two Pro Bowls. And I know you could say the Pro Bowl doesn't matter and it's the NFC and whatever. He was top 10 in QBR in his second season and his third season in the NFL. For the first eight games of that 2021 season, he was a legitimate MVP candidate when the Cardinals were winning all those games and taking on the Packers, who eventually had the number one seed in the NFC that year. They took the Packers down to the last minute of a Thursday night game where AJ Green forgot to turn around on a passing route. It got intercepted. So Kyler Murray is that dude. Like Kyler Murray got that contract for a reason. I'm shocked that the Cardinals organization and Cardinals fans like actively hate Kyler Murray. It's been one of the most shocking revelations to see. And part of it is the immaturity. Him and Cliff Kingsbury weren't talking the last 10 weeks of the season. There's obviously the injury concerns. He has not finished a season During his four years with the Arizona Cardinals, he probably won't again this year, gauging on how the Cardinals view him at this point. So beyond the injuries, beyond the immaturity, the organization just seems kind of sick of him. But they're also committed to each other because they know like Kyler Murray is a really, really good quarterback. I don't think he has the ceiling anymore of potentially a top five quarterback in the NFL, but all the physical gifts are there for Kyler Murray. Like they're well, not it's all hard of them. for me. To, we know there's a few inches missing from the vertical, all the necessary physical gifts to be a 10 year, 12 year starting quarterback in the NFL and to get his number in the ring of honor in Arizona. All of those physical gifts are there. I understand Caleb Williams is really good. He might be the first two time Heisman trophy winner since Archie Griffin. Like he, is that dude all the physical gifts are there I I could defend it either way I could defend the keeping Kyler Murray because you've committed to him and you've seen the sample size on him and I could understand the moving on from him for Caleb Williams when it comes to if I'm not comfortable 100% saying Caleb Williams over Kyler Murray I'm definitely not 100% on Drake May or any of the other quarterbacks in this year's draft class. I don't think Klupnik for Clemson is eligible this year, but I wouldn't be 100% sure on either of those guys, especially when there's so many really good players at the top of the draft this year at other positions. Well, I, I think like an indicator of more or less how good Caleb Williams is, is we've heard the Patrick Mahomes comparison thrown out there. And that's not just getting thrown out there by anybody. That's actually getting thrown out there by like Nick Wright, for example, which we know how much he loves Patrick Mahomes. I know, Kyle, you're a big time Patrick Mahomes yourself. So to hear like that praise getting thrown out there for Caleb Williams, a guy who hasn't even taken an NFL snap yet, won't for another year, is not something that you tend to just turn your head at and look away. I, I think that there is something to the prospect coming in in Caleb Williams. But again, going back to what we talked about earlier, just like the support system has to be there. And whether it's Jonathan Gannon at the head coaching position or someone else moving forward, I have to believe in the head coach. Uh, Gannon, heck, he was getting ripped apart for his decision making in the Super Bowl, which ultimately led to that Chiefs comeback against the Philadelphia Eagles. So he's not even necessarily a defensive mastermind. Defensive head coaches, we know, tend not to last when it comes to bringing in a rookie quarterback. So I think that that might be spelling his death sentence right there as far as the Arizona Cardinals head coaching spot. So it sounds like the Cardinals are going to be paying out more money to a coach that's no longer coaching for them when it comes to Gannon, probably in the long run. So who is going to be that guy that they bring in? You mentioned too, Kyle, that you think that uh, 
Another popular pairing that's getting thrown around on Cardinals Twitter is Marvin Harrison Jr. also being a pick by the Cardinals because they actually do have what might end up being two top five selections if the Houston Texans end up just as bad as the Cardinals are. You get Marvin Harrison Jr. and you get Caleb Williams. That's a good building block, but there's so much more to be done to get this roster going in the direction that they want. Not to mention if San Francisco continues to be good, if Seattle continues to trend upward, you have a division that's improving around you. Uh, There's a lot working against the Cardinals, not limited to just in general, the bad management that tends to fall around this franchise. The fact that, yeah, they're making their players pay for dinner. An NFL version of the Oakland A's from Moneyball, essentially. That's what we're seeing this franchise operate at. They're one of the most low-level franchises in the NFL, perhaps in NFL history, as far as how they tend to run their organization. So Caleb, whoever, Drake May, Kyler, they're not walking into a great thing. But I think another indicator of how much the Cardinals think of Kyler Murray, we can't forget the infamous clause in his contract when it came to film studying. So I do wonder who is that team that wants to bet on Kyler Murray moving forward is too, because even beyond Arizona, how many teams do we think are going to be trying to buy for his services after Arizona ultimately decides to move on? Because actually the Cardinals, they're probably going to get a first round pick back, right? What was compensation for Kyler Murray coming off ACL tear and not playing a year? What, what, is that question for you when you think about Kyler Murray? Well, so I can answer the question for you on what teams would be interested when there was that like three months period where like Kyler was beefing with the organization and they hadn't given him the extension yet. That the extension kind of came in July. Kyler's agent reached out to and had mutual interest from the Broncos and the Panthers. Now, obviously, the Broncos ended up going with Russell Wilson. The Panthers have now gone with Bryce Young, so neither of those teams would be interested now. But there was at least some level of interest if and when the Cardinals decided to move on from Kyler Murray at the time. But again, someone would be interested. I just don't know the value, and I don't even know. We don't even know the quarterback that they're getting at this point. Hell, like Trey Lance was worth a first round pick a year ago. Who knows what Kyler will be worth above or below his current value later? So that one's interesting in terms of the draft picks that they have they might even get more because Caleb Williams is going to be the number one pick in this year's draft whether it's by the team that gets the number one pick or the team that trades down so someone else can get him he's going to be the top pick in the draft I would be curious to see what happens and where the draft falls before figuring out the Kyler Murray trade value or even the number one pick trade value if the Cardinals get it from either the Texans or themselves that part will be interesting And the other part you mentioned in terms of Jonathan Gannon, the head coach, one, he's not the play caller on the team this year. It's uh, it's their defensive coordinator. I believe his name is Nick Rayless. He was like the linebackers coach for the Eagles the the year prior. So Gannon's not even going to call the plays for the Cardinals this year. Remember, two coaches actively chose to take defensive coordinator jobs over the Cardinals head coaching job. Dan Quinn turned down the job to be the Cowboys defensive coordinator. And Brian Flores turned down the job to be the defensive coordinator of the Vikings, which tells you just how much people view that job as being set up to fail in Arizona right now. Gannon's not going to make it. Whether he gets fired at the end of this year or the year after, he's he's not going to make it. Kyle, you said it all. I think regardless of who gets thrown into that uh, trash heap of a franchise is going to fail. Coach, player, anyone. So that that's all I got. <laughs>
Hey guys, we want to give a big shout out to Zach Burrell for joining us on this episode. Zach's one of the outstanding hosts of the Boda Sports Podcast. Those guys do a great job of covering the NFL and fantasy football. Give them a listen and find links to their stuff in our YouTube description below. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe on our stuff as well. From Juju, stay safe, happy, and healthy, and we'll see you on the next one. Another year where how good is Tua Tungavailoa is at the top of Miami Dolphin fans' minds and certainly NFL fans' minds. Well, that was a question posed by Ryan Clark this week when he called out Tua's exercise routine, his exercise habits, despite the apology from Ryan Clark later this week, still led to an interesting back and forth between the two. We had a little bit of Will Smith, get your name out of my mouth, coming from Tua in a press conference. Zach, as a Patriots fan, how do you look at this Miami Dolphins team? How do you view Tua as Vegas has it? They're currently projected to be a better team coming out of the AFC East this year, which is something you haven't had to say a lot over the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, I would say specifically for this year, that Dolphins team ceiling is is the Super Bowl. Looking at what Tua was last year was a quarter quarterback that was doing the job well enough to produce wins and especially where you have Jalen Waddle and Tyreek Hill on both sides of the ball there and potential to get in a guy like Jonathan Taylor where your running back room has been a conundrum for the last 10 plus years yeah they're they're a threat they're a real real threat coming out of the AFC East and the you know the the AFC conference in general yeah I, I view them as a as a threat the Dolphins are in a very interesting position and I agree with you on the team being really good their defense should be much improved which ironically that was the flip this last year right Right? It used to be like the Dolphins had this top defense with Xavier Howard and Christian Wilkins and, and they were a top 10 defense, but they just couldn't score points. And then the flip side was they had a top 10 offense for the first time since 1995, which is a real stat. They had not had a top 10 scoring offense since 1995. They were a top 10 scoring offense but their defense couldn't stop anyone to save their lives. And then at the end of the season, Tua got concussed and they made the playoffs, but it didn't matter because they lost to the Packers on Christmas, which that was a really bad game by Tua, but I'm willing to like kind of suspend belief on that because he was probably concussed and they just kind of played him through that game. But at the same time, my whole philosophy on Tua is please ask me again at the end of the season. I wouldn't feel comfortable giving him a long-term contract extension, which is what the Dolphins didn't do this offseason. He's going into his fourth season and doesn't have a long-term extension, which there's not a whole lot of cases for player who gets the fifth-year option accepted, but doesn't get a long-term contract at the end of the third year. There's cases where the fifth-year option gets declined, like I know that happened for uh, Jameis Winston, for Marcus Mariota, uh, Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones being the one person of that group that ended up getting the long-term extension. There's the whole situation with Baker Mayfield where he got the fifth-year option picked up but then didn't end up playing on the team for his fifth year. So uh, there's not a whole lot of precedent for a team picking up the fifth-year option and not extending the quarterback long-term. So we're kind of in uncharted territory with Tua in that respect. If we're trying to like picture what does Tua look like compared to other past quarterbacks in the league. And my whole philosophy on his play is just please ask me again at the end of the season. I don't know how good he is. I know he's good enough to merit being a starting quarterback in the NFL. We saw that the first roughly three games of last year and uh, four games after he came back from the first concussion. And so we've seen that he's capable of being a starting quarterback in the NFL. We've seen that 
having one of the three best receivers in the NFL on your team makes a quarterback go from looking very poor to a league average quarterback for much of the season. So yeah, Terry Kill coming to the team makes a big difference, but I I don't know how good or bad Tua is at this point. Please ask me again once I have a larger sample size. I tell you one thing that Tua is for sure going to need, he's going to need a healthy Teron Armstead to be there because we know when Armstead kind of missed some time with injuries last year, that was also a detriment to Tua on the field. And right now he's hoping for a week one return, but he's currently dealing with a leg injury. So who knows? That's kind of up in the air. We know anytime the Dolphins have had injuries on the offensive line, that has spelled disaster for Tua and his young NFL career. He's unfortunately a guy that hasn't been able to stay healthy. So I know that Ryan Clark, again, since apologized for his comments on Tua, but I, I do think it does bring up the very real discussion of Tua's ability to kind of like stay around in the NFL because health has been one of the, his biggest knocks, right? We can all agree that health has been the biggest thing that has plagued Tua in his career. So it's kind of on him also to be at utmost peak physical ability, mostly just to protect himself almost, because if he's taking hits, if he's getting thrown around like a rag doll then that's going to shorten his NFL career there. And that's going to let these questions continue to linger. He needs one season where he can stay healthy from start to finish. And I think that that would honestly put a lot of questions to bed on Tua. If he can stay healthy on an NFL field for all 17 games, I feel like that's going to take away one of the, at least the biggest knocks, whether that sticks around for the rest of his NFL career or not. We don't have a crystal ball here to be able to answer that question for sure. But at least if I'm an NFL executive right now and I'm saying, ah, man, Tua, that guy just can't stay on the field to save his life. Then I would say that would probably be one of the biggest things that would cause me pause whenever I'm thinking about giving him an NFL extension. And certainly when I think about like his future, it looks like the type of player you would franchise tag. What do you think the importance of health is for Tua moving forward? Uh, I mean, for him, it's everything. I mean, you know, we we as NFL fans sat and watched what happened to him last season on multiple occasions, down and out, could not play the, the rest of the season, very injured, obviously with, with head trauma. I mean, I just watching uh, that Bengals game, you want to look away, but you can't stop watching because it's so bad. So, I mean, it's everything. It's everything for Tua. You know, he he needs to be able to keep his head on his shoulders. I mean, I know that uh, Mike McDaniels was doing something with, you know, having the camera in his blind spot and kind of watching what Tua sees on the field. And we have that all in, in OTAs. That is the kind of stuff that he has to do now in order to just stay afloat. You know, he is starting a lot slower than these other quarterbacks that haven't had that injury history so far. Tank for Tua was a popular buzz phrase that was thrown around um, because I think a lot of people looked at Tua the process and thought he had potential to be a top 10 quarterback. When you look at the current landscape of the NFL, do you think that Tua still has that ability within him? feel pretty certain, and I said this last year, that we know what Tua is not. Tua is not Joe Burrow. Tua is probably not Justin Herbert. So at this point, we're kind of operating within that space of like the second tier, third tier, fourth tier starting quarterbacks in the NFL in terms of what his ceiling could end up being. And ultimately, I think a lot of that success, as we've seen from the Kirk Cousins and the Ryan Tannehill's, uh, even at times the the players on the upper echelon, like the Aaron Rodgers or the Dak Prescotts or even the Tom Brady's at the end of the day was the team that you put around the player is ultimately going to determine how well or poorly the player ends up performing. And maybe that's where Tua ends up occupying is the space where I, I remember with Derek Carr for years, we saw when they 
tore the team down. Carr was like 28th in passer rating. And then when they put a support around him, he almost won an MVP. So it's like sometimes the player keeps the the boat steady and is as good or bad as the team that you put around him, which makes sense why the Dolphins have gone all in the past couple of years, right? Is is this idea that, yes, we're going to give up a first round pick for Tariq Hill. Yes, we're going to trade down in the draft with the bonus pick we got in the Laramie Tunsil trades that the Niners can go up and get Trey Lance, but then we're going to trade two first round picks for Jalen Waddle, essentially, because they traded from 12 to six and they had to give up a, an extra first round pick to make that happen. So we're going to give two first round picks for Jalen Waddle. We're going to trade a first round pick for Tariq Hill. We're going to trade a first round pick for Bradley Chubb. They want to trade a, a day two pick for Jonathan Taylor right now. They they are eager to trade for Jonathan Taylor. The Colts asking price is just too high right now. So I mean, they went out and traded for Jalen Ramsey this offseason. Like they are in a position where they are trying to put as much of a support around Tua as they possibly can because that will give them the best sample size on whether or not to extend Tua or go down the Dak Prescott Kirk Cousins path of franchise tag one year franchise tag a second year then we have to make a decision about whether to keep them or, or let them walk into free agency, whether they go down that path and the conversation changes from to a how good or bad is he to to a long-term extension or not long-term extension, which surprisingly we didn't get there given that he's been eligible for an extension for about six months now, I think. Whenever the new league year started in March is when Tua has been eligible for an extension, but the Dolphins have waited and watched and they are going to have him under contract for at least two more years and they're going to use those two years to figure out whether or not they want to commit to him being the $40 million quarterback or maybe $50 million quarterback at the rate it's going $50 million quarterback long-term in Miami and what that means for their roster construction. Uh, Zach, how do you look at the Dolphins in this AFC East? Like, how do you think they rank against the Bills, the Jets, and even your Patriots? I can tell you without a doubt against the Patriots. The Patriots have never been a surefire bet against the Dolphins regular season, even when Tom Brady was around. Um, it was the team that they struggled with the most in the division. I put a lot of weight into that when I when I look at how everything is now and the landscape of, of the league is now. The, the Dolphins should, for all intents and purposes, sweep the Patriots this season. As far as the AFC goes, I'm putting them anywhere between two and five you know i think that they they're making the playoffs they have a, a legitimate shot to knock off the bills for the division they really do i think the bills are going to take a take a huge step back this season and obviously i think that they're going to be probably anywhere from five or six in that wild card spot um i don't think they they just make it i think that they are a legitimate threat this season i think tua does maintain health this season i think that they've been doing a lot to try and keep him on the field Hey guys, we want to give a big shout out to Zach Burrell for joining us on this episode. Zach's one of the outstanding hosts of the Boda Sports Podcast. Those guys do a great job of covering the NFL and fantasy football. Give them a listen. Find links to their stuff in our YouTube description below. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe on our stuff as well. From Juju, stay safe, happy, and healthy, and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? 
That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.